Section 7 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, Lord Falkland, A Moderate and Liberal Church, Part 3. Even in this earlier and more purely literary society, there are indications that subjects of theology and the great question of the church obtruded occasionally. If a mind like Suckling's did not escape the pressure of such thoughts, it can hardly be supposed that any were free from it and a company which numbered Digby and Watt Montague amongst its members was not likely to be without some gusts of controversial excitement. But it was Falkland's later society in the neighborhood of Oxford, where the conversation was, as Clarendon says, one continued convivium philosophicum or convivium theologicum. After his marriage, and still more apparently after his father's death, 1633, Falkland betook himself, with characteristic enthusiasm, to ecclesiastical and theological studies. Having made himself master of Greek, he passed from the study of the classics to that of patristic antiquity. Clarendon speaks with warm admiration of his prodigious progress in learning. Quote, there were very few classic authors in the Greek or Latin tongue that he had not read with great exactness. He had read all the Greek and Latin fathers, all the most allowed and authentic ecclesiastical writers, and all the councils with wonderful care and observation for in religion he thought too careful and too curious inquiry could not be made amongst those whose purity was not questioned, and whose authority was constantly and confidently urged by men who were furthest from being of one mind amongst themselves, and for the mutual support of their several opinions in which they most contradicted each other. And in all those controversies he had so dispassioned a consideration, such a candor in his nature, and so profound a charity in his conscience, that in those points in which he was in his own judgment most clear, he never thought the worse, or in any degree declined the familiarity, of those who were of another mind, which, without question, is an excellent temper for the propagation and advancement of Christianity. With these great advantages of industry, he had a memory retentive of all that he had ever read, and an understanding and judgment to apply it seasonably and appositely with the most dexterity and address, and the least pedantry and affectation that ever man who knew so much was possessed with, of what quality soever. These are the studies in which we must conceive him mainly occupied after his permanent retirement to Tew. To what extent his gayer London friends, Ben Johnson's sons, mingled with the society there, it is difficult to say. That to some extent they did so is implied in Clarendon's account. But the main elements of this later society, of which Falkland himself was obviously the chief, and not merely one amongst others, and of which his own residence was the rendezvous, were Oxford men and theologians. All the names are those of well-known church divines, viz. Dr. Sheldon, Dr. Morley, Dr. Hammond, Dr. Earls, Mr. Chillingworth. Hales, curiously, is not mentioned, but we may almost certainly conclude that he was one of the number, although probably his distance, at Eton or London, rendered him a less frequent visitor than those named. Footnote. Since 1613 he had been one of the fellows there. End of footnote. Many others, both Oxford and London men, must have been occasionally present. Clarendon's addendum to the names given by him plainly supposes this, and indeed all men of eminent parts and faculties in Oxford besides those who resorted thither from London. Falkland's house, within ten or twelve miles of the university, looked like the university itself, by the company that was always found there. And all, quote, found their lodgings there as ready as in the colleges, nor did the lord of the house know of their coming or going, nor who were in his house, till he came to dinner or supper, where all still met. Otherwise there was no trouble, ceremony, or restraint to forbid men to come to the house, or to make them weary of staying there, 
so that many came thither to study in a better air, finding all the books they could desire in his library, and all the persons together whose company they could wish, and not find in any other society. Close quote. With the exception of Chillingworth, all the divines mentioned survived to the Restoration. Not only so, but their lives became so identified with the later movements which followed first the temporary overthrow of the Church of England, and then its re-establishment, that it is comparatively difficult to conceive of them in that early time when they were Falkland's guests and joined in his favorite discussions. This is especially true of the two first mentioned, Sheldon and Morley. After the Restoration, Sheldon was appointed first Bishop of London, and then in 1653 Archbishop of Canterbury. He was not only active, but zealous in the disgraceful legislation which issued in the ejectment of St. Bartholomew's Day, 24th August, 1662, and the Five Mile Act, 1665. While others were for leniency, Sheldon, according to Burnett, pressed the execution of the law, and undertook to fill all the vacant pulpits that should be forsaken in London better and more to the satisfaction of the people than they had been before. According to the same authority, he seemed not to have a deep sense of religion, if any at all, and spoke of it most commonly as of an engine of government and a matter of policy. Whatever credit may be due to this statement of Burnett, and it can hardly be received without confirmation, it is beyond question that Sheldon's whole career proves him to have been more of a politician than a divine. Extended footnote. Burnett's statement is supposed to receive confirmation from certain remarks of Dr. Samuel Parker, Bishop of Oxford, who had been Sheldon's chaplain, to the effect that the Archbishop, quote, though very assiduous at prayers, yet did not set so great a value on them as others did, nor regarded so much worship as the use of worship, placing the chief point of religion in the practice of a good life. But while Parker tells this, he at the same time says that Sheldon was a man of undoubted piety, and the real import of all such remarks can only be fairly judged from a knowledge of all the circumstances, the point of view of the speaker, and the character of those whom he is addressing. The same thing is to be said of his alleged, quote, advice to young noblemen and gentlemen who by their parents commands resorted daily to him was always this let it be your principal care to become honest men and afterwards be as devout and religious as you will no piety will be of any advantage to yourselves or anybody else unless you are honest and moral men outspoken manliness and an intense aversion to all religious pretense may explain such sayings without supposing any lack of true religious feeling in the speaker End of footnote. He cannot, therefore, be supposed to have added much to the purely intellectual side of the debates which interested Falkland and Chillingworth. But his clear and firm judgment, Burnett admits that he had a very true judgment, and direct vigorous sense even then gave him special influence over his friends. Chillingworth's correspondence with him on the subject of subscription plainly shows this. His remarkable powers of conversation contributed to give weight to his opinions. Quote, he had a great pleasantness of conversation, perhaps too great, he had an art that was peculiar to him of treating all that came to him in a most obliging manner. He was also, according to uniform testimony, generous and charitable, and it was no doubt his agreeable politeness and a certain munificence of nature which led Sir Francis Wenman to say of him, when he resorted to the conversations at Tew, that Dr. Sheldon was born and bred to be Archbishop of Canterbury. He was twelve years older than Falkland, and having been elected Warden of All Souls in 1635, when the meetings at Tew were in full vigor, he was probably one of the most regular visitors there. Of Morley we have already heard in connection with Waller. He, too, survived the Restoration, and became bishop, first of Worcester and then of Winchester, where, like Sheldon, he distinguished himself by his munificence. He was less active and prominent in promoting the repressive measures of the Restoration, but he must also be held accountable for them, 
and the shadow of their disgrace so far also covers his name. Baxter says that he was the chief speaker of all the bishops at the Savoy Conference, and frequently bore down objections by his fervor and interruptions. Strangely, with all his enthusiasm for the royal cause, with which he became identified in many special ways, he was very zealous against popery, and had the reputation of being a great Calvinist. On this latter account he seems to have suffered somewhat at the hands of Laud in the early years of his intimacy with Falkland. The story is told of him at this time that on being, quote, asked by a grave country gentleman who was desirous to be instructed what their tenets and opinions were, what the Arminians held, he pleasantly answered that they held all the best bishoprics and deaneries in England, which was quickly reported abroad as Mr. Morley's definition of the Arminian tenets. Close quote. Morley appears to have been an eminently sensible and vigorous-minded man. A hard student, usually rising about five o'clock in the morning, both in winter and in summer, and a hard thinker, extremely fond of argument, of great wit, readiness, and subtlety in disputation, says Clarendon, and of remarkable temper and prudence in conversation, which rendered him most grateful in all the best company. What was temper and prudence in agreeable society may have readily passed into heat and vehemence when he was contradicted and crossed in argument, and so may be explained the hot spirit ascribed to him by Baxter and Burnett's words that while a pious and charitable man of a very exemplary life, he was extreme passionate and very obstinate. Burnett adds that Morley first became known to the world as a friend of the Lord Falklands, and that was enough to raise a man's character. In comparison with Sheldon, he thinks him to have been the honester but the less able man of the two. Henry Hammond was a higher character, and certainly a much higher divine than either Sheldon or Morley. Sheldon's ability, so far as we know, never took the form of authorship, and Morley only became an author after the Restoration, or in his old age, as he himself cynically said, when he published a few sermons and tracts, chiefly of an official character. Hammond was a voluminous author, and his Practical Catechism, 1644, and Paraphrase and Annotations on the New Testament, 1653, give him special rank in the list of Anglo-Catholic theologians. His life has been drawn at length by one of his own contemporaries, and presents a beautiful picture of self-devotion, simplicity, and saintliness. His friendship with Sanderson is well known, and the likeness, yet the contrast betwixt the two friends, their equal enthusiasm and earnestness of piety, with the more compliant temper and less rigorous practices of Sanderson, and the stiffer Anglican churchmanship of Hammond, give a curious and graphic insight into the character of episcopacy during its time of persecution. At this time Hammond was reduced to great poverty, but his meek and quiet spirit never murmured. His gentleness under suffering is especially commemorated. He had learned to make the best of all circumstances, saying with Epictetus, quote, that everything had two handles, if the one prove hot and not to be touched, we may take the other that is more temperate, close quote. He delighted, he said himself, to be loved rather than reverenced, and one of his sayings, memorable for its solemnity, may be taken as the keynote of his lofty Christian earnestness. Oh, what a glorious thing, how rich a prize for the expense of a man's whole life, were he to be the instrument of rescuing one soul. It was in the view of Charles the Second to appoint him to the bishopric of Worcester, but he died in the spring of 1660, before the king's arrival. Dr. Earls, or Earl, as the name is also written, is perhaps the least remembered of all the divines mentioned by Clarendon. But in 1630 he was the only one who had really distinguished himself as an author. He had then written a very clever series of sketches entitled Microcosmography, or A Piece of the World Discovered in Essays and Characters. The sketches were published anonymously in 1628, and ran through six editions betwixt that date and 1633. They bore to be printed for Ed Blount, and so are known by many as Blount's characters, 
but their authorship is beyond question. Clarendon says, in evident allusion to them, that some very witty and sharp discourses were published in print without his consent, and that when known to be his, he grew suddenly into a very general esteem with all men. And this is not to be wondered at. The sketches which compose the microcosmography are extremely clever, and to this day highly amusing. They are everywhere marked by a lively, incisive wit, a proverbial felicity of expression, and an ingenious, compact, and sarcastic turn of portraiture, which, notwithstanding some crudeness of arrangement, keeps the attention alive throughout, and seizes it with unexpected surprises of humorous pleasure. A perfect anthology of good sayings might be selected from it, sayings both rich in themselves and richly illustrative of the manners and tendencies of the time. Extended footnote. We can only give a few here, and these perhaps not the most telling or descriptive. Of a child, the author says, quote, He is nature's fresh picture, newly drawn in oil, which time and much handling dims and defaces. The elder he grows, he is a stair lower from God, and, like his first father, much worse in his breeches. Of the sermon of a young, raw preacher, quote, The labor of it is chiefly in his lungs, and the only thing he has made in it himself is the faces. He takes on against the Pope without mercy, and has a jest still in lavender for Bellarmine. Yet he preaches heresy, if it comes in his way, though with a mind, I must needs say, very orthodox. He preaches but once a year, though twice on Sunday, for the stuff is still the same, only the dressing a little altered. Of a grave divine, quote, he makes more conscience of schism than a surplus. He esteems the church hierarchy as the church's glory, and however we jar with Rome would not have our confusion distinguish us. Of a mere formal man, quote, his religion is a good quiet subject, and he prays, as he swears, in the phrase of the land. He apprehends a jest by seeing men smile, and laughs orderly himself when it comes to his turn. An idle gallant is one that was born and shaped for his clothes, and if Adam had not fallen, had lived to no purpose. He is one never serious but with his tailor. The devotion of a female hypocrite quote, is much in the turning up of her eye and turning down the leaf in her book when she hears named chapter and verse. She loves preaching better than praying, and of preachers, lecturers. She overflows so with the Bible that she spills it upon every occasion, and will not cudgel her maids without scripture. She is an everlasting argument, but I am weary of her. End of footnote. It is easy to understand the affinity betwixt such a man as Earl and Falkland. He was an excellent poet, it is said, both in Latin, Greek, and English, though he suppressed many of his English pieces out of an austerity to those sallies of his youth. He was very dear, adds Clarendon, quote, to the Lord Falkland, with whom he spent as much time as he could make his own, and as that Lord would impute the speedy progress he made in the Greek tongue to the information and assistance he had from Mr. Earls, so Mr. Earls would frequently profess that he had got more useful learning by his conversation at Tew, the Lord Falkland's house, than he had at Oxford. After the Restoration, Earl became Bishop of Salisbury, and, unlike both Sheldon and Morley, showed himself extremely favorable to the nonconformists. He labored, with all his might, against the Five Mile Act. He was evidently a sweet-natured and tolerant man, of unaffected piety and goodness. Walton says of him that, since the death of Hooker, none had lived whom God hath blessed with more innocent wisdom, more sanctified learning, or a more pious, peaceable, primitive temper. But of all the divines mentioned by Clarendon, Chillingworth is of course the most significant, and there is abundant evidence that he was Falkland's friend and the frequenter of his house in a more intimate sense than any of the others. 
here at two says clarendon quote, mr chillingworth wrote and formed and modelled his excellent book against the learned jesuit mr knott after frequent debates upon the most important matters in many of which it is characteristically added he suffered himself to be overruled by the judgment of his friends though in others he still adhered to his own fancy which was sceptical enough even in the highest points there is a tradition that falkland actually assisted in the composition of chillingworth's great work of this however there is no evidence and it may be said to be contradicted by the internal character of the work yet evidently the two friends were associated to the mind of their generation in a quite peculiar manner mr william chillingworth of trinity college in oxford aubrey says quote, was his most intimate and beloved favourite and was most commonly with my lord they had such extraordinary clear reasons that they were wont to say at oxon that if the great turk were to be converted by natural reason these two were the persons to convert him all this intellectual companionship was broken up with the first mutterings of war in sixteen thirty nine before this ben jonson was dead and the meetings in the apollo discontinued the convivium theologicum probably met at tew for the last time in the spring of that year before falkland went away with the royal army then raised to suppress the rebellion in scotland this expedition is known as the first bishop's war troops were collected by a circular letter in the king's name addressed to all the english nobility who were invited to assist his majesty in recalling his northern subjects to a sense of their allegiance falkland considered himself bound by the royal summons or the old soldierly inclinations may have returned upon him irrepressibly with renewed opportunity of gratifying them clarendon's language rather implies this latter view and moreover that a further disappointment befell him in reference to the command of a troop of horse which he had been promised thwarted in this ambition he went a volunteer with the earl of essex the history of the expedition to scotland is aside from our purpose it came to nothing ended in fact in a somewhat ignominious manner for charles and his army and all the success remained with henderson and the scottish covenanters who arranged a temporary settlement with the king in sight of dunn's law where the armies lay facing each other there is no account of falkland throughout the expedition he cannot be supposed to have entered upon it with any enthusiasm notwithstanding his military ardour a crusade in favour of episcopal power and a compulsory liturgy however it temporarily secured his sword cannot have enlisted his sympathy but we have no means of estimating his judgment of what proved so hapless a movement of the royal policy it was this event of his life which is commemorated by the verses of waller and cowley inscribed to him to the former we have already alluded cowley's verses upon the whole have more nature and life than waller's while they show even more strikingly the extraordinary impression which falkland's character and abilities had made upon the more intellectual men of his time and cowley's testimony is all the more remarkable that we have not hitherto encountered him among falkland's special friends it is hardly possible notwithstanding walpole's sneers that such a combination of judgments could have been mistaken we give but a few of cowley's lines quote, great is thy charge o north be wise and just england commits her falkland to thy trust return him safe learning would rather choose her bodily or her vatican to lose all things that are but writ or printed there in his unbounded breast engraven are and this great prince of knowledge is by fate thrust into the noise and business of a state such is the man whom we require the same we lent the north untouched as is his fame he is too good for war and ought to be as far from danger as from fear he's free the scottish expedition had ended and the king was again at whitehall by the midsummer of sixteen thirty nine we hear nothing however of falkland till the following spring when he was elected to sit for newport in the isle of wight in the short parliament which then met for three weeks fifteenth of april to fifth may sixteen forty 
there is no record of his having spoken during this brief parliamentary experience but the impression produced upon him was fruitful and important according to clarendon's statement Quote, from the debates which were there managed with all imaginable gravity and sobriety he contracted such a reverence for parliaments that he thought it really impossible they could ever produce mischief or inconvenience to the kingdom or that the kingdom could be tolerably happy in the intermission of them and from the unhappy and unreasonable dissolution of that convention he harbored it may be some jealousy and prejudice to the court towards which he was not before immoderately inclined it is no part of our intention to sketch even in the most summary manner the series of political events which now followed each other in rapid succession it will be enough to indicate very briefly the part taken by falkland first on the popular side and then evidently after great hesitation and misgiving on the side of the king to do justice to the political side of his character or to attempt any vindication of his political action would far outrun our space besides leading us away from our special subject falkland's brief but busy public career may be divided into three parts first from the opening of the long parliament third november sixteen forty to the execution of strafford twelfth may sixteen forty one second from this great event to his acceptance of office under the king about eight months later first january sixteen forty one to two and lastly the twenty months from january sixteen forty two to september sixteen forty three of his official life during the first of these periods falcon is entirely at one with the popular party and amongst the most active in urging their measures of redress and punishment within six months the whole system of thorough had not only been swept away but its authors committed to the tower and the most conspicuous of them after a trial of fourteen days in westminster brought to the scaffold others the secretary windebank and the lord keeper finch only escaped the same fate by flight no one ventured to say a word for the delinquents or to stop the current of events falkland appears most notably in the case of finch but he and hyde also joined in strafford's condemnation even in his severity his fairness and sense of justice appear he bore no love to the great irish viceroy not only for his political delinquencies but from the memory of some unkindness not without a mixture of injustice from him towards his father some old score no doubt arising out of strafford's relation to his father as his successor in the government of ireland yet he was the only member of the house of commons who when the proposition was made for immediate impeachment ventured to suggest any delay he desired the house to consider quote, whether it would not suit better with the gravity of their proceedings first to digest many of those particulars which had been mentioned by a committee before they sent up to accuse him declaring himself to be abundantly satisfied that there was enough to charge him Close quote. the suggestion was opposed by pym and rejected by the house under apprehensions of strafford's influence with the king and the risk of his being induced once more to try the policy of dissolution from the first falkland appears to have taken an active part in the discussions of the parliament the impeachment of strafford took place almost within a week of its meeting and on the fourth of december sixteen forty he is found speaking at length on the subject of the illegal exaction of ship money here as everywhere it is the sense of justice in this case of outraged justice which animates him and inspires his eloquence the constitution of this commonwealth he said quote, hath established or rather endeavoured to establish to us the security of our goods by appointing for us judges so settled so sworn that there can be no oppression but this security mr speaker hath been almost our ruin for it hath been turned or rather turned itself into a battery against us and those persons who should have been as dogs to defend the sheep have been as wolves to worry them these judges he continued have delivered an opinion and judgment in an extrajudicial manner that is such as came not within their cognizance they being judges and neither philosophers nor politicians Close quote. 
he desired to vindicate the king while condemning the judges Quote, a most excellent prince hath been most infinitely abused by his judges telling him that by policy he might do what he pleased and as these men have trampled upon the laws which our ancestors have provided with their utmost care and wisdom for our undoubted security we must now be forced to think of abolishing of our grievances and of taking away this judgment and these judges together and of regulating their successors by their exemplary punishment having then alluded to the accusation of strafford for intending to subvert our fundamental laws and to introduce arbitrary government he implies that whatever doubt might exist as to his conduct none can exist as to the conduct of the judges no law being more fundamental than that they have already subverted and no government more absolute than that they have really introduced in conclusion he concentrates his eloquent indignation upon lord keeper finch mr speaker said he quote, there is one that i must not lose in the crowd whom i doubt not but we shall find when we examine the rest of them with what hopes they have been tempted by what fears they have been essayed and by what and by whose importunity they have been pursued before they consented to what they did i doubt not i say but we shall find him to have been a most admirable solicitor but a most abominable judge he it is who not only gave away with his breath what our ancestors had purchased for us by so large an expense of their time their care their treasure and their blood but strove to make our grievances immortal and our slavery irreparable lest any part of our posterity might want occasion to curse him he declared that power to be so inherent to the crown as that it was not in the power even of parliaments to divide them this speech was fruitful in results the system of illegal imposts which had produced such a flame in the country was not only swept away but falkland assisted by hyde was appointed to prosecute the chief delinquent at the bar of the house of lords finch as we have seen did not wait to face the trial but fled in disguise to holland thanks however were voted by the house of commons on the fourteenth of january quote, to mr st john and mr whitelock the lord falkland and mr hyde for the great services they have performed to the honour of this house and the good of the commonwealth in their conduct of this business it is in reference to falkland's conduct in this matter particularly that clarendon observes he was quote, so rigid an observer of established laws and rules that he could not endure the least breach or deviation from them and thought no mischief so intolerable as the presumption of ministers of state to break positive rules for reasons of state or judges to transgress known laws upon the title of conveniency or necessity Close quote. but falkland's attitude in the great series of debates which followed on the church is more interesting to us here also at first he was entirely on the popular side and in his zeal against the bishops even separated himself for a time from his friend hyde with whom he had hitherto acted in all things his friend afterwards remembered the circumstance and has touchingly signalized it in his history we shall confine ourselves at present to a rapid review of the different stages of the subject as it came before the parliament and the part taken by falkland in the course of the debates his special position in the matter of church government will again come before us in the closing discussion of his opinions the conduct of the bishops came before parliament very early after its opening immediately following strafford's accusation wren bishop of ely was impeached and on the eighteenth of december laud was voted a traitor by the house of commons and conveyed to the tower falkland disliked the archbishop and the dislike was probably reciprocal it is true that laud while baiting the puritans with merciless severity maintained kindly personal relations with men like hales and chillingworth he did this probably from mixed motives but certainly from no sympathy with their opinions and any toleration he was disposed to give to old friends whom perhaps he thought it possible to win over to his own side 
he was not at all likely to extend to one in the position of falkland who showed both readiness and ability to put himself at the head of a moderate or liberal party in church as well as state who had in fact already become distinguished as the leader of such a party the instinct of the genuine sacerdotalist is still more true to hatred of liberalism than of puritanism it was all the more creditable to falkland that he seems to have taken no part in the impeachment of the archbishop but numerous petitions having been presented in december alleging the manifold grievances of the country from the oppression of the bishops and praying for their abolition falkland made his first great speech on episcopacy on the ninth of february following when the petitions were taken up and discussed the whole of the speech apparently has been preserved and is marked throughout in the highest degree both by eloquence and sense the enthusiasm of patriotic sentiment and yet the moderation of a reflective intellect it commences as follows Quote, mr speaker he is a great stranger in israel who knows not this kingdom hath long labored under many and great oppressions both in religion and liberty and his acquaintance here is not great or his ingenuity less who doth not both know and acknowledge that a great if not a principal cause of both these have been some bishops and their adherents mr speaker a little search will serve to find them to have been the destruction of unity under pretence of uniformity to have brought in superstition and scandal under the titles of reverence and decency to have defiled our church by adorning our churches to have slackened the strictness of that union which was formerly between us and those of our religion beyond the sea an action as impolitic as ungodly we shall find them to have tithed mint and anise and have left undone the weightier works of the law it hath been more dangerous for men to go to some neighbour's parish when they had no sermon in their own than to be obstinate and perpetual recusants while masses have been said in security a conventicle hath been a crime and which is yet more the conforming to ceremonies hath been more exacted than the conforming to christianity he deplores the check thus given to christian instruction and the consequent ignorance which would best introduce that religion which accounts it the mother of devotion he continues quote, the most frequent subjects even in the most sacred auditories have been the use divinum of bishops and tithes the sacredness of the clergy the sacrilege of appropriations the demolishing of puritanism mr speaker to go yet further some of them have so industriously labored to deduce themselves from rome that they have given great suspicion that in gratitude they desire to return thither or at least to meet it halfway some have evidently labored to bring in an english though not a roman popery i mean not only the outside and dress of it but equally absolute a blind dependence of the people upon the clergy and of the clergy upon themselves and have opposed the papacy beyond the seas that they might settle one beyond the water nay common fame is more than ordinarily false if none of them have found a way to reconcile the opinions of rome to the performance of england and to be so absolutely directly and cordially papists that it is all that fifteen hundred pounds a year can do to keep them from confessing it so far and further in reference to many particulars carefully detailed but for which we can find no room falkland's enthusiastic patriotism breaks forth against the bishops but before the close of his speech he recalls the fact that the order and the men who had so abused it in england were not to be confounded Quote, we shall make no little compliment to those and no little apology for those to whom this charge belongs if we shall lay the faults of these men upon the order of the bishops upon the episcopacy i wish we may distinguish between those who have been the stream that carried them he remembers that the first planters and spreaders of christianity and the main conducers to its resurrection at the reformation were bishops quote, and that even now in the greatest defection of that order there are yet some who have conduced in nothing to our late innovations but in their silence 
some who in an unexpected and mighty place and power have expressed an equal moderation and humility being neither ambitious before nor proud after either of the crozier's staff or white staff some who have been learned opposers of popery and zealous suppressors of arminianism between whom and their inferior clergy in frequency of preaching hath been no distinction whose lives are untouched not only by guilt but by malice scarce to be equalled by those of any condition or to be excelled by those of any calendar i doubt not i say but if we consider this this consideration will bring forth this conclusion that bishops may be good men and let us give but good men good rules and we shall have both good governors and good times falkland argues therefore even in this first speech for the maintenance of the order of episcopacy cleared of its abuses if temporal power or employment or the extent of their revenues interfered with the usefulness of bishops let these things he urged be considered and taken care of but he can hardly deem it possible that the house of commons should quote, think it fit to abolish upon a few days debate an order which hath lasted as appears by story in most churches these sixteen hundred years and in all from christ to calvin close quote. and even in proposing to cut down the proportions and income of the episcopal office he is strongly opposed to doing this to such an extent as would interfere with the dignity of learning and the encouragement of students which as he puts it would invert the policy of jeroboam and as he made the meanest of people priests make the highest of the priests the meanest of the people episcopacy to his mind in short was not a divine though an ancient and primitive order i do not believe them bishops to be jure divino nay i believe them not to be jure divino but neither did he hold them to be injuria humana he considered them in fine as neither necessary nor as unlawful but as convenient or inconvenient and drew his thoughtful eloquence to a conclusion in words weighty with wisdom for all time and which it would have been well if the long parliament had remembered and acted upon Quote, since all great mutations in government are dangerous even where what is introduced by that mutation is such as would have been profitable upon a primary foundation and since the greatest danger of mutations is that all the dangers and inconveniences they may bring are not to be foreseen and since no wise man will undergo great danger but for great necessity my opinion is that we should not root up this ancient tree as dead as it appears till we have tried whether by this or the like topping of the branches the sap which was unable to feed the whole may not serve to make what is left both grow and flourish many speakers followed on this occasion and the subject was referred to a committee formerly appointed for the london and other petitions it was destined to reappear before the house in many forms and to test and dissolve the unanimity with which its members had hitherto worked gradually it became evident that there were two distinct parties one for a moderate reform of episcopacy and all other abuses and a root and branch party which desired not only the overthrow of the church but were prepared for still more extreme measures falkland advanced a step but only a single step further with the anti-episcopal party he voted not only for the exclusion of the bishops from judicial functions but also at first for their exclusion from the house of peers footnote eleventh of march sixteen forty one when the discussions as to the position of the bishops in the house of lords seem to have begun End of footnote. it was on this last occasion that he separated from hyde and hope seems to have been temporarily cherished that he might throw himself heart and soul into the extreme movement hyde and he had been noted as inseparable they sat together in the house beside sir john colepepper member for kent so soon to be associated with them in office on the left-hand side at entering this was so much taken notice of that if they came not into the house together as usually they did everybody left the place for him that was absent 
When the bill for excluding the bishops from the upper house first came under discussion, Hyde spoke earnestly for throwing it out on the ground of its involving a grave constitutional change. Suddenly, Falkland rose from his seat beside his friend, quote, and declared himself to be of another opinion, and that, as he thought the thing itself to be absolutely necessary for the benefit of the church, which was in so great danger, so he had never heard that the constitution of the kingdom would be violated by the passing of that act, and that he had heard many of the clergy protest that they would not acknowledge that they were represented by the bishops. At the same time, he implied the matter was one for the House of Peers itself, amongst whom the bishops sat and had their votes, rather than for the House of Commons to determine. If they could make it appear that they were a third estate, then that House would reject the bill, and so, with some facetiousness answering some other particulars, he concluded for the passing of the act. It was a marvellous delight to many, adds the historian, to see the two inseparable friends divided in so important a point, and the more, because they saw Mr. Hyde was much surprised by the contradiction, as in truth he was. But Clarendon is here forgetful of the real sentiments of his friend expressed in his previous speech. He had then plainly stated that the position of the bishops in the House of Peers, or their lordships, as he called it, was no essential part of the episcopal authority, and that if their usefulness demanded it, they might well be deprived of this position. Falkland was in truth substantially consistent throughout all the discussions on the subject of the church, even where his consistency is most open to challenge. It is perfectly clear from the tenor of his speeches, even when denouncing the bishops, that he desired to uphold episcopacy, and for this purpose was willing to sacrifice all that was merely adventitious in the office, and which seemed to him, upon the whole, rather to mar than to add to its usefulness. He looked at the substance and reality of church order, which was plainly dear to him, and for the sake of securing this, was ready to yield whatever seemed to him unnecessary and unimportant. But when he discovered that the enemies of episcopacy were not to be satisfied by such concessions, but were determined on its overthrow, he immediately took his stand against them. This is the simple explanation of his having opposed, six months later, or in the following October, a bill of the same character, for depriving the bishops of their votes, as that which he had formerly supported. Hampton taxed him on this occasion with a change of opinion, but Falkland quite pertinently retorted, quote, that he had formerly been persuaded by that worthy gentleman to believe many things which he had since found to be untrue, and therefore he had changed his opinion in many particulars as well as to things and persons. Close quote. Footnote. It was on this occasion, apparently, that he made his further extended speech concerning episcopacy, a draft of which was afterwards found amongst his papers in his own handwriting and printed at Oxford in 1644. This speech is by no means so vigorous and eloquent as the first, from which we have already quoted in the text, but it is also very interesting in relation to Falkland's ecclesiastical views. It is chiefly taken up with urging the inconvenience of a radical change of church government, especially in favor of the Scotch ecclesiastical government whose jure divino pretensions, to meet when they please, to treat of what they please, to excommunicate whom they please, even parliaments themselves, are somewhat scornfully set forth. End of footnote. The truth was that in the interval the course of events had rapidly advanced. The root and branch bill for abolishing episcopacy had been introduced in June, and not only had the movement against the church gathered strength, but, more significantly still, the extreme party had prepared, although not yet presented, the grand remonstrance in the face of the desire of all moderate politicians to consolidate the reforms already obtained and open up the way for reconciliation with the king instead of further aggravating differences in short by the autumn of sixteen forty one the patriots of the long parliament had already separated into two divisions the constitutionalists with falkland and hyde and culpepper at their head had taken their stand against further encroachments 
while the radical reformers, headed by Pym, Hampton, and others, were determined upon still more extensive changes and an increased weakening of the royal prerogative. Falkland had plainly been let understand by Hampton that if the bill for the exclusion of the bishops from the House of Lords were carried, nothing further would be attempted against the Church, and when he found that he was deceived in this, he felt himself quite warranted in revising his original decision upon the point. To some extent, probably, Hampton himself was deceived, for Clarendon mentions that at first he did not feel inclined to the introduction of the Root and Branch Bill, although he afterwards gave his assent to it. The current of events hurried him and others away, and the tide for the time was running so strongly against the very name of bishops that he and Pym, and no doubt others, who professed themselves favourable to the doctrine and discipline of the Church of England, reformed of its abuses, were swept away with the general stream. End of chapter 3, part 3